Have you had a conversation with a friend or health professional lately about inflammation? It feels like it's being put forward as the root of all ills lately, from Alzheimer's and depression to IBS and heart disease. And its causes are just as wide-ranging. It's linked to stress, social isolation, ultra-processed foods, poor sleep, lack of vitamin D, air pollution. It's starting to sound a bit inescapable, like it's a byproduct of modern life. So it's worth taking a bit of time today to look at how bad inflammation is and how we can manage it. Do you need to start mainlining turmeric, for example? Don't try that at home, kids. Dr. Michael Burke is the Alfred Deakin Professor of Psychiatry at Deakin University and Director of the Institute for Mental and Physical Health and Clinical Translation, aka IMPACT. Michael, I imagine a committee took some time over that uh, acronym there. Yes, it took quite a bit of brainstorming. Good morning, Hilary. <laughs> Hello. Good to chat. It was worth it, though. And with us today, too, is Dr. Sophia Davidson, who's an inflammation researcher and specialist at WEHI, W-E-E-H-I, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. Uh, Dr. Burke, Dr. Davidson, welcome to Life Matters. Lovely to be here. Now, Sophia, I'll start with you and the basics, really. What is inflammation? What happens in our bodies? So, basically, inflammation is a catch-all term for a really set of complex processes which our body triggers when it perceives a a threat. So we discovered this in the context of infection and for the longest time most people just studied inflammation in the context of infection. And the interesting thing is it's not just your immune cells in your body, it's every cell type in your body is able to in some way contribute to the inflammatory response. So if, for example, you get a viral infection, which we're all pretty well versed in now, um, it's normally your epithelial cells, so your inert cells that line your nose um, that are uh, infected first, and they have all these complex, well, every cell type in our body has complex sensors which can be, which can recognise invading Um, viruses or even bacteria or other um, kind of threats. And so once these sensors are triggered, these cells release inflammatory mediators, which call immune cells to the site of the infection. And the immune cells themselves kind of come in, assess the situation, and then start to release more inflammatory factors, which may cause call more immune cells into the um, site of the infection. And then they really start a healing process where they um, kill all the cells that are infected, uh, warn other cells in the area to kind of put your guard up because there, there is an infection about. And once the infection is resolved, um, the immune cells kind of promote the healing process. So any kind of place where the tissue's been damaged, they'll clean up the area and release factors for regeneration. So we might see redness, swelling, that kind of thing, loss of function for a mm-hmm. while. But mm-hmm. what is happening is this complex and fascinating interaction between all these systems in the body. But it takes really good communication, doesn't it? They've got to switch it on, they've got to switch it off. Absolutely. And for every threat, there's a different kind of response. So the way your body responds to a virus is different to the way your body responds to a toxin. And you need the appropriate response because if you don't get it, then you have kind of bystander or um, ineffective inflammation. So you can have a lot of activity at a site, but it may not be appropriate to kind of clear the threat. So is that what's happening in chronic inflammation? Perhaps we could talk about the difference between acute and chronic inflammation for a minute. So the different, well, 
by definition, acute inflammation resolves and is cleared away, whereas chronic inflammation is perpetuated. Um, and sort of the problem is our body is not able to kind of deal with certain stimuli. So we evolved in this beautiful world where <laughs> the air was clean, the food was always fresh, and for millennia, our bodies learnt and our immune systems learnt how to live in that life. And then the Industrial Revolution happened, which, you know, was a great thing for our lifespan. We got stability. We had, you know, most people have better access to food, to shelter. We have sanitation. Medication. Medication, vaccination. All of these things extended our life, our lifespan. But it has meant that a lot of, you know, our environment has changed and we've stopped adapting ourselves to the environment, but instead we've adapted the environment to us. So things that, you know, exist now that didn't exist when we were evolving, like cars causing a lot of air pollution, pesticides, um, high-fat uh, high diet, high-fat, high-sugar diet. Nine-to-five jobs. Nine-to-five jobs. Uh, light, like just artificial light is enough to kind of disrupt our circadian rhythms. And because your body is this really complex organ that's continually communicating with itself, all of these things can be recognised as a threat in one way or another. So in terms of air pollution, we're continu like you can't escape it, right? You're continually inhaling the air that you live in. And this is, you know, we are inhaling particulates, which our, our body kind of says, well, this is weird. This is not what I know what it is. This is a threat. And so you kind of can have this perpetuation of inflammation because you have an inert stimuli that your body just doesn't know how to deal with. So does that mean that we're all now living in a constant state of, you know, fluctuating low-level inflammation or is it, does it affect different bodies differently? It, um, <laughs> that was what my PhD was on. <laughs> <laughs> That's my new career move, summarising people's PhDs in 30 words or less. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> um, sort of. So your genetics have a, have a role in whether or not, um, on how, in how strong your immune response is. And, you know, this can be great in an infection. If you have a viral infection and your body says, no, we're cleaning this up. It's really quick, but then it could be that, you know, um, you inhale some pollen and your body has a huge, huge inflammatory response where your eyes are watering, you're snotty, and it's just a bad time. So your genetics can play a role, other lifestyle factors. So a higher sugar diet, um, because immune cells, when they're activated, they're very, you know, they're very active. They're making lots of other inflammatory cytokines. They're telling other cells what to do. They're cleaning up. You know, they're high energy. So they tend to switch their metabolism and start to use glucose. So if there's a lot of sugar in your diet, then there's a lot of um, potential energy that immune cells can use in order to um, perpetuate this highly inflamed state. So if you've got the material lying around, then you're more likely to be more inflamed. Wow. Just listening to you speak, Dr. Sophia Davidson, all these cells sound really cute, <laughs> active, busy, <laughs> zooming in where they're needed, a bit difficult sometimes to switch them off. <laughs> uh, I'm learning a lot today about inflammation. But Dr. Michael Burke, uh, why are we talking about it so much at the moment? And are we all talking about the same things? 
Well, we're talking very much about the kind of chronic inflammation that Sophia so beautifully described. Acute inflammation really is less relevant to mental health, except that when you do get a viral infection and your immune system is in overdrive, that makes you feel pretty depressed. <clears throat> but for most people, it's chronic inflammation that is the driver of many mental health problems. Uh, we know that people with mental health problems, the best studied is depression, but others look very similar, are more likely to have elevated levels of markers of inflammation. And they're more likely to have the environmental risk factors that drive inflammation. As Sophia beautifully explained, we initially began to think about inflammation largely as a bug fighting exercise, but we increasingly understand inflammation as being the body's response to a diversity of stresses, not just bugs. So ultra-processed food, physical inactivity, not enough vitamin D, insomnia, trauma, stress, abuse, all these things drive inflammation. And I think we're moving away from thinking about inflammation as purely a bug-fighting system to a general stress response system within the body. And from a mental health perspective, uh, I think that's a, a more uh, kind of appropriate way to think about inflammation as a general activation of the body's stress defense systems. And we know that people who have elevated inflammation are more likely to be at risk of developing mental health problems. They're actually more likely to have persistence of mental health problems and respond more poorly to treatments. Was, so it's... In, yes, go on. You know, no, I'm, please go ahead. I was just interested because I was reading recently about how a veterinarian did a study that, that kind of sparked people's interest in the link between inflammation or illness and mental health. He was looking at sickness behaviour in animals, whereby when they were healing, they, they showed signs of depression. They lost their appetite. They didn't want to socialise. They just lay down a lot. But how strong is that link, Michael, between it's depression and inflammation strong. in humans? I mean, can, can we always say that if you're inflamed, you'll be depressed? No, it's never that simple. Hmm. So it just increases your risk. So there are plenty of people who have mental health problems who do not have signs, of, who do not have measurable increased inflammation. But the probability of you having increased inflammation is much greater if you do have a mental health problem like depression or psychosis or bipolar disorder. So it's it's probabilistic, but it's not deterministic. It doesn't guarantee it, but it increases risk. So do we know what the mechanism is? is? Is it something about the inflammation that makes people depressed? Absolutely. So probably the single best experimental model of depression is what you've just described in animals, but we know this in humans. So if you infuse inflammatory molecules into people, you develop almost all the symptoms of depression. They feel lousy. They have no energy. Their sleep is disturbed. They don't want to eat. They lose interest in things. They lose the, they, they don't get pleasure from things. The first evidence came with uh, um, uh, stuff called interferon, which is a medicine that is used in hepatitis B and other diseases. If you give people interferon, which uh, spikes immune activity, you can reproduce almost all the symptoms of depression. And the same is true if you infuse other immune molecules into people, you can replicate the symptoms of depression. So it's one of the best models of depression that we have. In fact, it's hard to think of a better way to induce a model of depression. So absolutely, inflammation can drive through what you accurately described as sickness behavior. 
uh, inflammation can drive many uh, if not most of the symptoms of depression. It must be very hard to untangle for someone, for example, with chronic inflammation, which has led to uh, problems elsewhere in the body. It must be hard to untangle whether it's just feeling depressed because you've got this draggy illness or whether it's a, a kind of chemical thing about your immune system. Is it hard? Absolutely. Because um, if, if you're going to have a chronic illness of some kind, uh, that is going to increase your risk of depression. Almost all chronic physical illnesses, especially the ones that are associated with inflammation, best examples would be things like rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease are, are associated with a significant increased risk of inflammation. But at the same time, the majority of people who have elevated inflammation and depression don't necessarily have a major physical illness that's driving it. It's more... Things like trauma, stress, obesity, poor diet, lifestyle factors, environmental stresses, air pollution, all the things that you mentioned earlier. In aggregate, all these, all these things to a small degree push up inflammation and they're persistent, particularly you know, people who've had a history of early childhood abuse. They often have elevated inflammation that persists. Mm. Fascinating look at inflammation and how it works in our bodies and how it interacts with our environment today on Life Matters. My name's Hilary Harper. I'm glad you could be with us for this because it seems very relevant to our, our modern everyday lives. You've been hearing from Dr. Michael Burke, who's the Alfred Deakin Professor of Psychiatry at Deakin University and Director of the Institute for Mental and Physical Health and Clinical Translation, IMPACT, and Dr. Sophia Davidson, who's an inflammation researcher at WEHI, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medicine. Research. Uh, tell us, Sophia, what uh, other illnesses are linked to chronic in inflammation? Um, so there's kind of all kinds of what you'd call lifestyle illnesses or modern uh, or Western kind of associated illnesses. So type 1 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, neurodegenerative. It's becoming clearer and clearer that neurodegenerative diseases um, are likely to be associated with inflammation. Um, and then you have kind of the classical ones, which are actually treated with anti-inflammatories like rheumatoid arthritis, um, irritable bowel syndrome, and um, lupus, for example. Great. So many. Um, <laughs> how much control do we have over them? I mean, you, you've talked about anti-inflammatories, but how much can we change our lifestyle to deal with the inflammation? And how much is it out of our control, those systems in our bodies? I mean, you can do, there are, there's always something you can do. So um, having a diet that's kind of the Mediterranean diet, so low in sugar and high in omega-3s is, omega-3 fats is really beneficial. Omega-3 fats are kind of, we have good evidence to say that these are anti-inflammatory. So more fish, less cake. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. My face has gone sad in the studio here. Sophia can see that, but no, I, I accept your conclusions. Um, but also exercise and even low impact exercise is really good because your skeletal muscles are kind of this huge, your skeletal muscles, they do use a lot of energy. So they also use a lot of glucose um, in their metabolism. So when you're kind of using them, you're using up the glucose in your system 
and use of skeletal muscles actually promotes the release of inflammatory factors. So you kind of have a two-hit benefit by, you know, just going for a walk. Sleep too. I was mm. reading how much shift workers are at risk of autoimmune diseases because their circadian rhythms are so disrupted. Yes, and... Even worse is they're more at risk of cancer because one of the major jobs of inflammation in a normal setting is to patrol our body and make sure all our cells are happy and normal and healthy. And so you have dysregulation of your circadian rhythm and this kind of means that neurons, uh, the cells from our central nervous system called neurons communicate with um, immune cells, and then there's kind of some kind of dysfunction, and then the immune cells aren't able to recognise certain threats like cancer as they should be. Wow. Again, I'm seeing the cute little immune cells patrolling. <laughs> Gang, over here, a troop. Uh, Dr. Michael Burke, which groups are more at risk of having problems with inflammation? We've heard about shift workers and, and some of the lifestyle issues. Are there other groupings that are vulnerable? Well, age is probably the biggest risk factor. So as one gets older, levels of inflammation go up. Uh, people with other medical illnesses are at greater risk. Uh, people who are overweight and obese are more over, uh, are more at risk. So there are some groups that are at more risk. But, I mean, the really important message, which I think Sophia hit on, which is, is that there's stuff you can do about it. So it's possible through exercise, through diet, through norm improving your sleep, that you can target inflammation and target the symptoms that underlie it. But there are also medications that target inflammation that might help for the disorders that we're talking about. So we've got a very active research program in our team where we're looking at using anti-inflammatory medications to help with mental health problems. So we've done some work on using cholesterol-lowering medicines called statins, which have really robust uh, anti-inflammatory properties, and we think that they might have antidepressant effects. And other groups have shown that they might help people with schizophrenia. That's uh, fascinating. A... And actually, Michael, we've just got a text from Michael in Canberra saying, what do NSAIDs, anti-inflammatories, uh, particularly long-term, do long-term if, if you're taking them for chronic pain? Do they have bad side effects over the long-term? Well, interestingly, uh, some of the non-steroidals, particularly this medicine called celecoxib, which is an anti-inflammatory, has been quite well studied in both depression and schizophrenia, and it seems to be potentially helpful, actually. Uh, the other medication, which is anti-inflammatory, and this is a program of work led by Olivia Dean in our team, is an old antibiotic called minocycline, which has quite robust anti-inflammatory properties. <clears throat> and we think it's useful for depression. We've done some clinical trials and shown that it helps depression. And it also seems to help some people with schizophrenia. So there's a lot of promise in medications that lower inflammation as being useful for people who have mental health problems. Uh, the next challenge for our field is to find out, is there a subgroup of people who we can identify who are more likely to need or benefit from anti-inflammatory medications? So that's kind of the next frontier for us. Some fascinating texts coming in with people's personal experiences. Justine says in Melbourne says, I heard the program on changing glucose intake on Life Matters last year, and it has been, hyperbole aside, absolutely life-changing for me. And one of its key achievements is reducing inflammation. Justine says, I couldn't recommend this more highly. And you can find that story on the ABC Listen app uh, and the podcast feed. Others saying, uh, Julie says, Australians' current air pollution standards are not strong enough to protect human health. 
She's quoting from the Environmental Justice Australia website. So clearly we also need higher standards to support health, says Julie. And the question here, I guess, Michael, is uh, can we avoid certain causes of inflammation? I mean, it, it sounds like the Mediterranean diet, dealing with our exercise and our sleep and our stress levels is really important. But are there things that are just out of our control? I think you raise an incredibly important issue. So we, we talk about the Mediterranean diet, but the truth is we know it's incredibly hard to get people to change their lifestyles. And we know from the obesity literature, this is now really well understood, that just telling people you're eating the wrong food, you sh- it's your fault, is not helpful. It doesn't help solve ad- obesity problems. We're now beginning to understand that exercise and diet are much more an issue of the environment in which we're living. So the food environment, the built environment are much more important drivers. And so rather than telling people, oh, you, know, you shouldn't be eating that, you should be eating this, uh, all the evidence now points to the fact that we need to be looking at changes in the at a public policy level to change the food environment. So we're looking at things like taxes on junk food. We're looking at things like banning advertising or junk food to kids. That's what works. Telling people not to eat uh, highly palatable, addictive foods is generally unhelpful. (laughs) From personal experience, I support that, yes. Yeah, we we just know that it doesn't work. So even though, yes, it's correct, if you ate a Mediterranean diet, it would be good for you. That's often not an easy uh, message because there are not a lot of people eating junk food who don't know that it's bad for them. Mm. Uh, we have to change the environment, and this has to happen through public policy. Uh, so the 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 real imperative uh, at a public health level is to change policy settings that will enable using nudge economics, taxes, uh, and those kinds of levers, a change in behavior through the change of environment. People respond to the environment that they're in, the food environment, the built environment, and that's what facilitates or inhibits whether they're going to eat healthily or going to be active. And just very quickly to finish up with Sophia, is the turmeric the solution? Should we listen to the wellness influencers? <laughs> Everything in moderation. Like <laughs> Turmeric if you want. <laughs> if you want. But, you know, look after your body. It's a beautiful thing. And going for a walk, trying to find, you know, fresh foods and getting good sleep and enjoying your life. You know, stress is a huge factor. And so if you can find things that bring you joy, then you're you're halfway there. There you go. Life Matters, bringing the joy here on ABCRN. Dr. Sophia Davidson, Dr. Michael Burke, thank you both so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Sophia Davidson is an inflammation researcher and specialist at WEHI, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. And Dr. Michael Burke is the Alfred Deakin Professor of Psychiatry at Deakin University and Director of the Institute for Mental and Physical Health and Clinical Translation, aka IMPACT. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.